Just start with a sound check. Is the volume okay? Okay. So, almost 2,600 years ago, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree realized the truth of the way things are, the complete truth, fully awakened. And as Guy mentioned a couple nights ago, he recognized that there were those with a little dust in their eyes and chose to share these precious teachings. Really an act of compassion for the world to recognize the suffering and to share his precious teachings that carry forward to this day. It really inspires my own practice to reflect on how these teachings have been carried forward by the generosity of those who supported the renunciants, teachers, the centers, entirely carried forward by generosity. And it's also inspiring to think of how the discourses, the teachings of the Buddha were carried forward. There was no written language as Guy said in the time of the Buddha. So the um, Ananda, Buddha's attendant, his cousin, fortunately had perfect recall. He could remember the exact words of the Buddha's ta- talks, who was present, the circumstances, location. And he, after the Buddha died, transmitted, said the words of the discourses to monks who memorized the discourses, repeated them over their lifetime, and then pass them on to the next generation of monks until there was a written language. So again, really inspires my practice. And the Buddha perhaps recognizing that there was no written language uh, and that that uh, would be helpful to speak in a, in a particular form using lists, so many lists in the Buddhist practice, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, Eightfold Path, Ten Paramis. Um, makes it a little easier to remember these lists, but a lot of Buddhist lists uh, to remember. So another list tonight. The list tonight is the Seven Factors of Awakening. And uh, seven is a hard number of things to remember, so I promise. I've already sent a message to Brian and in the morning there will be a listing on the board of the seven factors. So no need to write them down unless you want to. So as as I was preparing the talk, I was remembering the first few times I heard a talk on seven seven factors of awakening and heard the teachers say they'd be speaking about this. First few times I thought, well, this isn't for me. This is the advanced stuff. But the truth is these seven factors of awakening are immediate. They're arising in our practice right here. They're not far away at all. So tonight I'll speak about the framework of these seven factors, touch on all of these uh, seven factors, talk about how they support our practice, how they support each other and uh, the role they play overall in our practice. So these seven factors have a transformative power to provide clarity 
and what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. To see that our happiness is not dependent on what is pleasant or pleasurable or getting rid of what is unpleasant or painful. The path of practice is about one of letting go, opening, releasing, seeing things as they really are, opening to the noble truths, the first two noble truths that Guy spoke about on Thursday, the truth that there is suffering, to be known and realized directly, and the cause of suffering, the craving, leading in the direction of the unconditioned, the unconditioned happiness that arises, that is known, that is known with the passing away of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. On my prior work life, I gave a lot of talks and I learned the power of three. It's best to talk uh, about three subjects. People can remember three. It's, it's a certain rhythm to that. So the seven factors can be broken down into three categories. Maybe this will be helpful. So the seven combined to three. The first is mindfulness, standing by itself. Mindfulness. And the second category is the energizing factors. And the third category is the calming factors. So mindfulness, standing by itself, and the energizing factors of investigation, investigation of dhammas. Energy, and then joy or rapture. And then the calming factors, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. All of these factors arising is supported by the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness being mindfulness of, of body, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of the dhammas. These are the uh, talks that Sally is offering on these four foundations. Also supported by the Eightfold Path of Practice. So in the beginning, I'd like to just talk about these um, seven factors of awakening and how they relate to the five hindrances. A little bit of review on the five hindrances that I spoke about two weeks ago. And uh, I mentioned then two weeks ago that the hindrances are really at the heart of our practice. And quoted from Joseph Goldstein, where he says that when we attend to these states carefully, we learn to see into their empty, transparent nature and no longer get so caught up in their seductive powers. Then they become the focus of our mindfulness and the very vehicle for our awakening. And our practice is to know when the hindrances are present, when they're not, to be intimate with a direct experience so we can see the transparent, empty nature. So we don't judge when these hindrances arise. We allow, we allow them to be seen in the light of awareness, to be known directly, practicing wisely 
and allowing these hindrances begin to, to begin to subside. So the, the calaces of greed, aversion, delusion begin to subside. And we let go of views. We let go of views of the way our practice should be, our views on how things should or shouldn't be, just in terms of whatever may be arising. From Thich Nhat Hanh, for things to reveal themselves to us, we need to be ready to abandon our views about them. Letting go of our views and attachments to the way our practice should or shouldn't be. And our practice in mindfulness, practicing with the five hindrances, deeply supported by the heart, pract- heart practices of loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness. They really allow the softening, the relaxing, that serve to support the arising of greater clarity, the arising of wisdom. I often miss this at the beginning of my practice. I would uh, really focus on the mindfulness practice only and didn't see a need to bring in the loving kindness practice and the compassion practice. I even attended metta retreats, still practicing mind with a mindfulness practice and not really going to hear the metta instructions at all. Really missed a precious opportunity. So it took some time to realize just how important these qualities are in supporting our practice. So as the hindrances begin to subside, as they begin to fade away, then the seven factors of awakening begin to arise. And they are immediate. If you're having periods where there's sustained mindfulness, moment to moment awareness, periods where there's a real feeling of strong energy, maybe where the practice seems to be carrying itself, if there's times when there's calm or when there's joy, then there's a beginning of opening to the seven factors of awakening. So they very naturally arise with a deepening of our practice. And again, just like with the hindrances, where we're to know when they're present, when they're not, we're to know when the seven factors, when any of the seven factors of awakening are present and when they're not. From the Buddha, because it is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called wise and alert. The seven factors of awakening can also be called the seven factors of enlightenment. It is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors that one is called wise and alert. As I said, they are arising here, right here in our practice. They're very immediate. There is a sequencing in these seven factors of awakening, but they don't always follow this perfect sequence. And there's also a, a cycling through where they're building upon one another, supporting greater clarity in our practice. So there's a very foundation of practice of mindfulness, more continuity and stability in practice. It's, it is coming forward for all of you on this retreat. And with that building, strengthening of mindfulness, then there's that investigation, the discernment into the direct experience begins to strengthen. 
And that brings more energy, it's greater clarity into the nature of things and the seeing things as they really are. As the hindrances begin to subside, then more energy is brought into our practice, more energy arising. And that leads to a joy, a joy and kind of a sense of harmony as we settle more deeply into practice. And then tranquility and calm that can arise in practice that supports the deepest opening to concentration, a great deepening of concentration from that quality of calm. And then this opens to the seventh factor of awakening of awakening of equanimity, the calm, peaceful acceptance of things as they are, the balance, being able to hold it all with steadiness. So all of these factors are rising in practice very immediately, not so far off at all. So the seven factors can really support and carry our practice. We can really through allowing, through recognizing, through cultivating the seven factors, more and more we allow the Dharma to do the work. Kind of putting ourselves more fully in the Dharma to trust the Dharma. Letting go more deeply, not needing to make the experience any different than it is. real sense of not being in contention, kind of being in harmony with the present experience just as it is. From Ajahn Chah, do everything with a mind that lets go. Don't accept praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So this is the direction of our practice. Supporting the purification of our hearts, supporting the purification of understanding, understanding the truth of the way things really are. Opening to know that it's right here. The deepest freedom is to be known right here. So a beautiful quote uh, from T.S. Eliot last night, Carol also quoted from uh, T.S. Eliot. I think my favorite poet, um, The Four Quartets. It's a beautiful expression of the Dharma by a poet who uh, wasn't Buddhist, but he spent uh, several years living somewhat like a renunciate. And it was in that time that T.S. Eliot wrote that poem of The Four Quartets. And he says, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So again, with the seven factors, we're to know when they're present, when they're not, and then to really appreciate their presence. Because when we appreciate the presence of the seven factors, And we're like deepening the grooves to support the sustaining of these qualities, to support their future arising. So they can really become the primary things in awareness at times too. 
seven factors can become very prominent in our practice. And they build on each other, as I said. Uh, for instance, as uh, concentration really deepens, concentration serves to gather, collect attention, and supports the deepening of mindfulness. And then with the deepening of mindfulness, more curiosity, more investigation into the dhammas, into the direct experience. So I'll go through the uh, seven factors uh, fairly briefly. First factor is mindfulness, or sati. Sati in the Pali, the language of the Buddha. As Guy said, this practice of mindfulness is to understand what your experience is in the present moment. And it's a great thing that there's never too much mindfulness. Have you ever caught your saying, yourself saying, I'm just too mindful? <laughs> Not possible, never too much mindfulness. This real deepening of the moment moment experience that occurs during the length of this retreat, whether six weeks or three months. And we, we really have the deep intention to keep sustaining the mindfulness through every moment of the day, kind of in an unbroken way. That's the deepest intention. So to be bringing the mindfulness into the sitting, into the intention to stand, into the walking out of the hall, into the walking periods, standing in the lunch lines, going through the line in the eating, taking a shower, lying down to go to bed. Every moment is a moment of mindfulness. And we keep using this tool of mindfulness throughout the day to begin to see more and more clearly, allowing the Dharma to reveal itself, to see the impermanent nature of whatever may be arising recognizing the unsatisfactoriness at times of the, particularly of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion, and the transparent, empty nature of experience. We can, can begin to note with refinement through mindfulness, noting when the intentions, the intentions that come before every action, or the intention before standing up, or aware of the feeling tone at the sense door contact. Feeling tone that arises with hearing, with seeing, sensing, smelling, tasting, cognizing. And mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. Bring all of this into our practice. Again from Joseph Goldstein, for mindfulness to function as a factor of awakening, it has to be a springboard for investigation. So investigation, the second factor, investigation of dhammas, dhamma vachaya, this discerning quality. It's not a thinking about or an analyzing, but a direct discernment, investigating, being more directly present for the direct experience. This kind of a sense of curiosity. It really serves to cut through the fog, the fog of delusion cuts through the ignorance of self-identification. Particularly useful in recognizing the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion, the kalesis. To recognize what's unwholesome and unwholesome, the unwholesome being that which is rooted in greed and aversion and delusion. 
and to recognize that as that which is wholesome, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, which supports presence, acceptance, loving-kindness, compassion, patience, generosity, gratitude. So more and more we cultivate that which is wholesome, that which is not rooted in the kalesis, and bring that deeper acceptance to the present experience, whatever it may be, even when those forces of greed and aversion are present. And we use a tool of really recognizing that we can use the tools of practice wisely to drop the I and me when the difficult emotions arise, for instance, to simply note, this is what fear feels like, and this is what anger feels like, or sadness feels like. It's such a different quality than when we say, I'm a fearful person, or I'm an angry person. We can really allow that direct experience to deepen, to be intimate, when the anger, fear, sadness is, is known, finding a greater strength to be present with it for that direct experience, bringing the light of awareness to the direct experience, which supports the softening and the letting go and the greater clarity to arise. So with the investigation too, I really uh, love bringing the sense of investigation into the dining hall. Uh, to really, for instance, pay attention to the intentions in eating, the intention before lifting up the fork, or the intention to chew. You can even catch sometimes a kind of a pulsing that arises before the intention, and then the action that follows the intention. So I remember being here some years ago, many years ago, and uh, it was really a little period where there's strong mindfulness and I was aware of chewing and then unpleasant crumb on the lip, kind of a pulsing that was felt of the, kind of the intention and the pulsing and the intention to lift the hand and take the napkin, wipe the crumb off my lip. But there was also this kind of playfulness. What happens if I restrain that impulse, that intention to lift the hand? So my body was kind of twitching around, playing with this and just kept noting unpleasant intention. And, uh, then suddenly the tongue darted out and grabbed the crumb. <laughs> Who did that? <laughs> Where did that come from? It's, the dining hall is a great place too to be with uh, the noting of um, sense door contact because all of the sense door contact is happening in the dining hall. So sometimes after a meal, I just note hearing, seeing, sensing, smelling, tasting, cognizing. It's all right there in the dining hall. Maybe adding on the feeling tone. Just a great way to, to play with the four foundations of mindfulness, to bring it into practice, to bring this quality of investigation into our practice. So can also bring this sense of investigation into just changing our patterns through the day a little bit to maybe try sitting a little bit longer and uh, do a little bit longer sits or do a little, one longer walking period in the day. Um, 
maybe to do as uh, other teachers have suggested one day where you, if you're not on the eight precepts, to try it out. Try the eight precepts for one day. Just see how, it, how that works for you, what the impact may be. It's a sense of playfulness and this sense of playfulness and using the four foundations of mindfulness that can really support this factor of investigation. So as we bring this discernment into our practice and energy, greater energy arises because we start to see things more clearly. Just as that uh, experience I had with a crumb on my lip, it brought my more energy to my practice. What's going on here? It really brought energy to the practice. Energy is uh, virya, this third factor. It's also sometimes labeled as courage or strength or vigor. Bigger. So it's exactly the opposite of sloth and torpor, exactly the opposite of sloth and torpor. It can have a sense sometimes of really being energetically waking up, kind of a sense of having woken up. Um, so we might also find with more energy arising that we may, may need less sleep, may be able to sit longer. For many folks, they need a lot less sleep on retreats. Um, many times it's maybe three hours less night, three hours less sleep per night. Some people, they need the same, some a little more. But I especially encourage you, at, uh, I do this with my own practice. If I wake up in the night and I feel awake, I don't just try and fall back asleep and toss around in bed. I get up and start practicing. Sometimes I may go back to sleep again in two hours, sometimes not. But really trying to deepen the practice using the energy that's arising, taking advantage of it. And this arising of energy really gives us more, more strength for the moment-to-moment -moment experience to, to maintain the continuity of practice. Remember one time, this was probably uh, 11 or 12 years ago, being here on retreat with Joseph and... Uh, before the heating system here was fixed up, the radiators used to be a lot louder, some of you may remember, and a lot of banging. And that was really the primary thing that was in awareness in my practice was these radiators. And uh, I unwisely felt like they were not the appropriate object for meditation. <laughs> I told Joseph the trouble I was having with these radiators. And he said, become an expert on the sound of the radiators. <laughs> and I thought he was joking at first, but he meant it. <laughs> I became an expert on the sound of the radiators. Became the primary tool in my practice for, for a few days. And really became a tool for waking up. That the, any moment is a moment that has a potential for awakening moment of liberation. Uh, even in listening to the radiators, it can be the recognition that the knowing and the objects are without separation, without distinction. So energy supports the arising of the wholesome qualities non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, of acceptance, of presence, stronger mindfulness, accepting the present period experience just as it is with this heart of kindness and compassion, 
And it serves to suppress that which is unwholesome, that which is rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. And allows us to stay with a difficult experience, particularly this quality of courage. Sometimes when very difficult emotions or stories are arising, it's a courage that allows us to stay with it. Many times over the years in my practice, I have that sense, some difficult memory or story kind of starting to bubble up, kind of that, oh, no sense, I don't want to go there, I don't want to let this come up. But it's that sense of courage that allows us to stay with it, that allows the purification of the heart to stay with that story. Still knowing when it's appropriate to back off a little bit, but ultimately allowing and being intimate with that direct experience in the body, in the mind, that allows that purification. With energy, it's really important to balance effort. Sometimes with energy, where the energy is, is strong, it may feel like the Dharma is really carrying us. It may feel like there's really no efforting required. Sometimes there's a need to apply more effort where we just need to apply a little bit more effort, perhaps to bring in the noting practice. And for some of us, it's necessary to bring in a little less effort to back off. I've been a little bit of a striver over the years. So for me, it was the, the backing off that was important. Kind of using the energy, but then trusting the Dharma, letting go. Found over the years, the striving really never got me anywhere. It just more got in the way letting go, the, the sense of relaxation, the basic kindness that more deeply supported the practice. So we're to know when energy is present, when that sense of energy is really strong, and when it's not. Not to judge the experience, but just to know when this factor of awakening is present and when it's not. This arising of energy is also deeply supported by faith, this trusting confidence of the heart. This is a Buddhist understanding of faith, trusting confidence in the heart, confidence in the, in the Dharma. So sometimes energy for practice can be supported by recognizing and reflecting on the shortness of our lives and the preciousness of our human life and our good fortune to have the Dharma practice in our lives, to practice with us. Reflecting on on death. For me, my hospice volunteer work that I've talked about reminds me of the presence of death, that this is a part of life and this is, uh, inspires me to be more dedicated in my practice. Taking inspiration from the Triple Gem, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. For me in practice, um, Many times, especially in these longer retreats, this simple act of bowing and coming into the hall and leaving the hall, bowing to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, really taking great, great refuge in the Triple Gem, inspires my practice, brings more energy to practice. And then connecting with our own deepest inspiration, our deepest inspiration for practice our inspiration in, in being here on this retreat, perhaps our deepest wish for freedom. And this too supports that going more deeply 
into the difficult states, letting the light of awareness shine on it all, potentially moving beyond fear. From Thich Nhat Hanh, fearlessness is not only possible, it is the ultimate joy. When you touch non-fear, you are free. So the fourth factor is uh, rapture or joy. Rapture translated as PT. PT is a Pali word. This joy that can very naturally arise in our practice. The joy we may feel in simply being settled, being with a, a single object on a sustained basis. The sense of harmony that can arise in our practice as we settle, have that sustained moment to moment presence of mindfulness with a fading, subsiding of the hindrances, sense of harmony that arises. Maybe it's the joy. I felt joy walking out the door last night and looking at the moon in the clear sky. Just joy looking at the moon, joy in being in nature, seeing the animals on the land here. When joy is arising, then the force of aversion, ill will, is really at bay, is really subsided. So we can really take happiness when joy arises. It's really great to appreciate when joy is arising in our practice. We can just take delight and joy in the Dharma, just being in the Dharma. Pity, this quality of rapture, it's a part of this uh, fourth factor can be experienced as a very strong felt sense in the body, particularly in the body. It's described as the anticipation of what one feels when crossing a hot desert and suddenly seeing a cool and refreshing oasis. This rapture and joy. And rapture uh, can sometimes be felt very powerfully in the body, sometimes as a trembling or jolts of light energy, jolts of energy, wave-like energy, or more pervading, sublime exhilaration or happiness. Sometimes it's even felt as a sense of levitating. Maybe that's a reason for you too. So we can get attached to rapture too. First time rapture arose strongly in my practice. Got pretty attached to it. And uh, it's just, It's like seeing the oasis in the desert, but the path goes on. So we're not to become attached to the rapture. So it's useful to continue being present with a direct experience of rapture, the experience in the body, maybe to label and name the qualities in the body that's being known in the body and the mind. So the energizing factors are, again, these three energizing factors are investigation, energy, and joy or rapture. With mindfulness as a foundation, never too much mindfulness. So as the hindrances diminish, then all of these strengthen and these factors of awakening arise. The hindrance is still a vehicle for awakening because this hindrance is still arising at some level all the point, all the way up until the point of full awakening. but we see more and more clearly the transparent, impermanent, and unsatisfactory nature of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion.
and we bring this sense of curiosity, more curiosity into our direct experience. Bring more energy that supports the fading of sloth and torpor, supports the suppression of doubt, and then the joy that arises with practice that suppresses aversion. And now the calming factors, the calming factors of tranquility, concentration, equanimity. That support a deeper letting go with practice. From the Dhammapada, be still and silent. Know the stillness of freedom when there is no more striving. Be still and silent. Know the stillness of freedom where there is no more striving. Captures a sense of the calming factors. And all of three of these two is this calming, calming factors become more prominent, open more fully, then mindfulness strengthens, and that factor of Dhamma Vachaya of investigation greatly is supported by these as well. So the fifth factor, tranquility, calm, Pasadi, Pali, also sometimes translated as calm or serenity. It's described as a coolness, a, a calm on reaching, actually reaching the oasis in the desert. So it might be experiences you felt in sitting or in walking on retreat, maybe even just having a cup of tea when the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion have subsided. We feel us as calm in the body, calm in the mind, a real sense of subtleness, of non-reactivity. With this tranquility and calm, there's a real sincerity, a deeper sense of sincerity, stillness in our practice. As teachers, I can really see the sincerity of your practice, such a deep sincerity that uh, I really appreciate and um, I feel like this beautiful quality, I feel like a real beautiful quality that arises with practice. Again, from the Dhammapada, wise people become serene, like a deep, smooth, and still lake. So we can also get caught in this oasis, get caught in the calm, and really kind of just sink in and let go, kind of lose the mindfulness in this tranquility. So again, we're to be fully mindful, to be fully present for the direct experience of what this sense of tranquility and calm is like. And recognize that the journey continues on, that the path continues on. So the sixth factor is concentration or samadhi. So this is a very important factor in the path of practice. It's, uh, one of the five spiritual faculties, a spiritual fa uh, power, um, a factor of awakening, and also a factor on the Eightfold Path of Practice. So it was a surprise to me when I realized just how deeply the sense of calm and tranquility support concentration. Always been one to, who's had an orientation toward the concentration practice. But for many years in my practice, it would be kind of a tightening up around concentration, kind of trying to, to make it happen, kind of turning the screws on it. 
often as the day wore on, there'd be a sense of exhaustion from all the efforting. But when concentration in my practice arose from a place of great calm, it's entirely different. Concentration was much stronger than the concentration that had ever been experienced before. It was a real lesson for my practice, both in the importance of calm to support concentration, but the importance of the calm, relaxed quality and practice overall. Again, as been said during this retreat, there's two, two kinds of concentration, the one-pointed concentration in being with a single object, perhaps the breath. Some people here are working with concentration as their primary practice. Or it's also the one-pointed practice of being with a metta practice, being with the metta phrases that some folks are working with too. And it can also be the... Uh, the second type of concentration, the, the momentary concentration, staying with the changing objects and practice that form of concentration that builds and strengthens over time and then is also supported by this factor of calm. So concentration has this important quality of gathering and collecting attention. So that really supports the deepening of our mindfulness practice. So this deepest, concent, deepest uh, concentration built on the foundation of calm supports even the absorption that can arise with a concentration practice and also supports our moment-to-moment concentration practice. And again, we're to simply know when concentration is present, when it's not, like we are with all of the seven factors of awakening. And then the seventh factor is equanimity. Equanimity being the balance of a a spacious heart, kind of perfect balance, accepting things just as they are. Bhikkhu Bodhi uses the term there in the middleness, there in the middleness to describe equanimity. Equanimity too has a great importance. It's one of the Brahma Viharas, the heart qualities, divine abodes. One of the 10 paramis, five spiritual factors, faculties, and again, a factor of awakening. It's a beautiful thing that this last factor, the seventh factor of awakening is, is a heart quality and really shows this aspect of this being a, a both a wisdom and a heart practice, the wisdom of the heart, the wise heart. With equanimity, there's, an ex- there's the experience of not being disturbed by anything. Uh, the sense of being able to hold it all in balance. It's captured uh, beautifully in the verses of the faith mind, this poem by Sang San, the third Zen patriarch. The poem begins, the great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. When neither greed nor aversion arise, all is clear and undisguised. Separate by it by the smallest amount, and you are as far from it as heaven is from earth. So it's kind of a neutrality of mind that arises with uh, equanimity. Some ways that I experience equanimity, uh, many retreats at Spirit Rock, especially in the summer months, and there are a lot of bugs and bees. 
and the equanimity is really strong. A bee can land right on my face. Peace is not disturbed. Experience it here in the food line. I have uh, several food allergies, coconut, lemongrass, and spinach. They're served a lot here on the retreat. Sometimes I hit the jackpot. <laughs> so when the equanimity is strongly present, I'll walk up to the food line. Ah, coconut, uh, coconut rice. Mm, tofu with lemongrass. Mm, side of spinach. Coconut cookies. Okay, rice, plain tofu, and beans. Fine, there's, there's no, when the equanimity is strongly present, there's no reactivity. There's been plenty of times where there has been reactivity, that's, that's the practice. But the equanimity, just no sense of disturbance. When the equanimity is really strong, it can feel like a granite mountain. Just absolutely nothing can shake it, absolutely unshakable. And it's from the equanimity that the greatest clarity arises. It really serves to this very strong equanimity that supports a much more, much more deepening quality of mindfulness and investigation. And at this point, it's that when the factor of Dhamma-Vachaya investigation cuts through most deeply the entanglements that cloud the heart and mind. And that's when the clearest seeing arises, the clearest, deepest realizations of the way things really are, for the deepest realization of the Four Noble Truths. And just as a kind of a review, we're to know both when the hindrances are present, when they're absent, use the tools of practice to support the fading away of the hindrances, and then we're to know when the seven factors are present, to practice with them wisely, to appreciate their presence, to support their future arising and sustaining of these seven factors of awakening. And all serving to diminish the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. Allowing the clearest seeing and the freeing of the heart from all confusion. And closing with a couple of quotes from the Buddha. Just as bhikkhus, practitioners, just as bhikkhus in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever do go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of awakening slopes to nibbana, inclines to nibbana, tends to nibbana. And then again from the Buddha, all those arhat Buddhas of the past, all the past Buddhas, attain to supreme enlightenment, enlightenment by abandoning the five hindrances, defilements of mind, which weaken understanding, having firmly established the four foundations of mindfulness in their minds and realize the seven factors of awakening as they really are. So let's sit for a few minutes.
May our practice be for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be free of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.